Now let's turn together to the evening scripture passage from the book of 1 John in the New Testament as we read for the second time, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, in the book of 1 John in the New Testament, chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Thus reads the living and abiding word of God. Now, those of you who are regular members of the congregation and friends of it will remember that Last Sunday evening, we began in the first of two studies of these same six verses from the fourth chapter of the book of First John, and I suggested to you that consideration of this passage is indeed perhaps never more important than in these present days in which we live, and for the reason that today, just as in the first century when John the Apostle wrote these words, there are similarly many false prophets who have gone out into our world today. And I only need, for instance, to name the name of certain cults that have become very popular and are using the name of Christ, such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnessism and Christadelphianism and so forth and to mention the New Age movement that is coming in some denominations into the church almost like a flood, that ancient Eastern mysticism dressed up in new Western garments and presented in some instances in the name of Christ, and those also within the church who are willing enough to honor Christ as a man or even in some sense to acknowledge that he is a supernatural figure. I only need to mention some of these things. And you can readily see how a second consideration of this passage in verses 1 through 6 is so exceedingly necessary. And as I mentioned last Sunday evening, young people particularly are very exposed to these kinds of doctrinal error that John is alluding to in this remarkable passage. Now it it, led us, as we said last Sunday evening, to the question, who is right? And how may the Christian discern truth 
from error? Is there any way of knowing what is true from what is false? And how can the Christian escape from the delusion and the deception of Satan who seeks to infiltrate the Christian church and lead it into bondage and into spiritual death? And so we began last Lord's Day to consider the first of three points, the error that these false teachers advance. Now, what I want to do this evening is briefly to recap on that first point that we dealt with, the error they advance, and this evening to conclude our study of this passage under the second and third heads that you have on the sermon sheet in front of you, the audience they attract in verses 5 and 6, and the aim they would attain in verse 4. So let's look at these three things together, the first very briefly because we covered it last Sunday evening, and the second and third in fuller compass. Now you remember that in verses 1 through 3, the subject concerning testing the spirits is the error they advance. Dear friends, writes John, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and so on. Now, we saw in our last study that the early church, though it was a spiritually vital church and had a great measure of the Holy Spirit residing in it and upon it, was nevertheless subject to the possibility of error creeping in among believers. And its orthodoxy then did not prevent the influx of what John calls false prophets even into the midst of believers. And we saw from that that spiritual influences were abroad even in John's time, which did not emanate from the true and living God, and that there are indeed other spirits as well as the Holy Spirit of God. Now this, beloved, we saw last week is very salutary and very vital for us to remember and to grasp, and we drew three conclusions from those observations of John, you remember that not every supernatural occurrence is to be associated with the Holy Spirit. And would to God in our day that the church which claims to be the Orthodox Church of the Lord Jesus were more discerning in its view of these things. As John drives us back to ask the question, from what source? Do these supposedly supernatural occurrences come? The speaking in tongues, so-called, the working of miracles, the supernatural signs, the so-called answers to prayers, and so we could go on and on. Not every supernatural occurrence is to be associated with the Holy Spirit. And the second thing we saw was that Satan's most effective camouflage is false teaching. And this is why John emphasizes in the passage, as you notice, false prophets and listening to their teaching. And in verse 6, 
how we recognize the spirit of truth from the spirit of falsehood. Satan's most successful camouflage is to dress himself up in the very garments of light and come among the children of God as though he were a child of God. And we are to be always and everywhere on our guard. That which claims to come to us in the name of Christ and with the authority of Christ may not in the end represent Christ. And that is why we must test, as we said, the teaching from every pulpit, from every radio microphone, on every television screen, every supposedly Christian book that we pick up, Put it to the doctrinal test. Does this media confess that Jesus Christ has come indeed in the flesh and is the divine and eternal Son of God? Because false teaching is the most successful camouflage by which that evil spirit infiltrates the true church of God and destroys it. And you remember... The third test was that doctrinal test to which I have referred, and that is coming to every teaching and testing it as the assayer tests coins to tell the true from the counterfeit. And these were the conclusions that we drew from that great passage in the first three verses of this chapter of John's letter. Now, the second head this evening is one on which I want to spend more time and on the third also. You notice that not only is the error they advance declared by John the Apostle to us that we might be on our guard to test the spirits, but the audience they attract is the second kind of major test we may apply to them. And you have that in verses 5 and 6. Let's read those verses again. They are, says John, these false prophets from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are, by contrast, from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now let's think about what John is saying here rather carefully. Do you notice that he says, They are of the world, therefore the world listens to them. Now it's vital for us to grasp that John is giving us a second and profound test to know the genuine from the counterfeit. What is it? Well, put very simply, it's this. There is a correspondence between the message and those who listen. In other words, who is listening to this teaching? Who is it that is listening to it? Because if it's the world that is listening to it and recognizing it and giving it attention and giving it accolades and finding the message attractive and persuasive even, then be on your guard, because there is only one explanation, says the aged Apostle John, that this message is not from God. There is a correspondence between the message and those 
who listen to it. Now let's take this apart as John gives it to us in verses 5 and 6, and there are really three parts to it, and it's worth looking at each one of them. Do you notice, first of all, in verse 5, John says of the false prophets, they are, after all, from the world. Now it's the false prophets that he's describing. And remember, they're not outside of the church. They're inside of it. They have the appearance of being the genuine thing. They're saying things that are true, at least some things that are true. As I said to you last Sunday evening, even a broken clock tells the correct time at least twice every day. And the fact that some things they say are true, of course, doesn't apply that they're all true. But it gives to them the appearance of being genuine. And they pose a real gen- a real and genuine danger to true Christians. Yet all the time, they are rejecting the claims of Jesus, as we have seen, to be God incarnate and the only Savior of sinners. Now, John says of these people, they are from the world. That is the source from which they come. That is Satan's organized kingdom of evil. That's what the world means in John's letters and this book of 1 John. Whatever the appearance may seem to indicate, whatever their claims that are being made, however far they may have infiltrated into the Christian church, the source from which they come is not the Father, but the world. And they do not belong to the church, and they have no part in Christ's kingdom. They belong to Satan's kingdom in this world and are his emissaries, sent out deliberately by him to discredit Christ and to destroy the fellowship of love and life. Now, let's remember that. And the second thing he says of them, you notice, again in verse 5, they speak of or from the world, or in the new international version rendering, from the viewpoint of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means ultimately the hallmark of these teachers is that they put this world and the things of this world first. Their only final concern when you press down their teaching and examine their motives is this worldly. They're not interested in the glory of Christ, concerning which we spoke this morning in true biblical evangelism. They're not interested in winning men because this is to the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. They have no interest whatever in the kingdom that is to come and come silently and spiritually by a work of God's grace within the heart and life of a Christian. They've no interest in otherworldly things. And so you see their message and their manner and their concerns are characterized by putting the betterment in this world first. They're interested in social service, for example. How many supposedly Christians have you known in this age who, when you examine their Christian experience in conversation with them, find it amounts no more to interest in the Christian gospel, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and healing the sick and so on, 
or they're into the gospel of liberation that is still a great thing in southern American countries, or they're under the influence of liberal theology that I reminded you has led to the greatest spiritual breakdown probably in the history of Christianity, leaving behind it wreck and ruin in its way. They believe in the forgiveness of sins, but without the shedding of Christ's blood. They believe in Christmas without the virgin birth. They believe in Easter without the bodily resurrection of Christ. They believe in Christianity, but without the costly taking up of the cross and following him. And you see, this is what John says of them. They are of the world, and they speak from the viewpoint of the world. And so you see, it is this worldly philosophy that John would warn us against. Now do you notice that the third thing about them comes at the end of verse 5. The world listens to them. Now isn't that significant? As I said to you a few moments ago, the correspondence between the message and the listener. The world listens to that message. Why? It drinks it in. Why? Because the men and women who bring it are of the world in the first place. They are Satan's subject who have received his teaching to undermine his church, God's church. And you see, these men ultimately and women have no interest in being saved from sin by the only Redeemer of God's elect. They want to go their own way and enjoy the things of the world to the full. And the world listens because, you see, the world is happy to grant Jesus some specially favored status, some niche there as an honored person, provided he doesn't interfere too much in the world's life and wicked ways. Now, beloved, listen to me this evening. Isn't it generally a true test that there is a correspondence between the message and the hearer? The music that you may like to listen to, for instance, have you ever asked yourself who is listening to it besides me? Is it the godly, devout people of the Lord who are taking pleasure in this music? Or is it the unregenerate and the worldling because it's stimulating in a sexual sense or an aesthetic sense even? You find something in life particularly inspiring. Have you ever asked who else is being inspired along with you? Is it the people of God? Do they find it uplifting? to their sanctified spirits? Or is what is inspiring you something that is inspirational even to men who are devilish? Your perspective on life, who else shares it? Is it the godly or is it the unregenerate? You see my point, the correspondence between the message and those who attend to it and find it enjoyable and attractive and drink it in. And the world will receive 
and listen to the message of the false prophets regarding even the person of Christ because these false prophets will allow him a diminished role and will not be willing to confess that he is Jesus the Christ who has come among us in flesh as the very incarnate Son of God. Because the moment you make that kind of confession, you've said, I owe something to him and I must pay it. And you see, the world will never accept it for that reason alone. And the hearts of all who follow the false prophets are set on this world. We want to enjoy its pleasures. We want to inquire more and more of its things. We want to gain its approval. We love the status that we can enjoy in the world. Don't speak to us about the real Christian message because we just will not listen. And John says, you notice, in verse 6, this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. How? By who is listening to it? By this, says John, we know by who is following and who is listening. And doesn't it take us back, beloved, to that passage in John's Gospel this evening that is so familiar to us in the 10th chapter where John lovingly speaks of Christ as the great shepherd and the good shepherd. And one of the things that he records Jesus as saying is what? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And hireling will they not follow because they do not know him? And beloved, isn't this just what John is saying to us here as the second major test by which we may know the genuine from the false? Who is listening? Who is following? My sheep hear my voice and they follow after me, our Lord says. And you know, beloved, in this day and age, we need to remember that the popularity of a movement or a minister or a personality or a book or a television program or a radio broadcast, the popularity of that thing is not therefore evidence of its spirituality. Let's remember it the audience they attract. And I have to say to you with sadness in my heart, because of the age in which we're living, I believe that one reason why this congregation here in Westminster tonight is small is because I think that what we are listening to is the voice of God and not the voice of false prophets. Because you see, that attracts and that leads to an influx of numbers. But what is popular, John reminds us, is not necessarily true. The audience that they attract. Now thirdly, the aim that they would attain. Now we couldn't pass over verse 4. You notice we've studied verses 1 through 3, the error that they propound. And we've studied verses Uh, 5 and 6, the audience that they attract, but what is the aim that they would attain? 
Look with me at verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, isn't this so encouraging for the Christian? But before we look at that encouragement, let's look at what John is saying very clearly by implication still about the false prophets. What are they in business for? It's a very important verse and a very necessary one. And I want you to notice these, I think it is, two things. It is what Satan's aim is, and then secondly, what the Christian's defense is. Now, Satan's aim, you notice, is clearly to overcome the Christian. Because John says, you are from God and have overcome them. And that's why that John uses the language that he does, because, you see, a battle is raging in these first six verses of the fourth of John. The battle is between the truth and the error, between the false prophets and the true prophets of God in John's day, the apostles and their followers. It's between, as verse 6 says, the spirit of falsehood on the one hand and the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, on the other hand. And the outcome of that battle, beloved, is not inconsequential. It is the domination and the subjugation of the listener, as we've seen. And make no mistake tonight that Christianity is therefore not a matter of morals only. It is a matter of truth and belief and right doctrine. It is a matter of men coming by the power and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to an awareness of correct and accurate doctrinal beliefs. And there's a battle going on where Satan would either dominate and subjugate you under the error that he brings in, under the, cons- under the persuasive camouflage of truth, or the Holy Spirit will triumph by leading you into the whole truth of God. And that is Satan's aim. Now, do you realize this evening, even as you sit here and you listen to me, There is a battle going on in your mind. Because I'm sure some of the things I've said, even in the course of preaching this evening, have stimulated you to rethink a position that perhaps you held before that may not have been a biblical position. Every time you hear the word of God preached, every time you listen to something that your inward conscience tells you is not orthodox biblical truth, there is a battle going on. And the evil one is seeking to entice you away under that camouflage of error. And every day that you live, beloved, This battle is going on. You have to fight it once. You have to fight it again. You have to keep on fighting it. The issue may change. The ground may be different. But in essence, the conflict is identical. And the question is, is God by his Spirit overcoming for truth 
or is Satan by his evil spirit overcoming you and leading you into error through the spirit of falsehood? You know, one of the great hymns in our hymnary, and I wish we sang it more often, we're going to sing it as we finish this evening, is number 483, Christian, dost thou see them on the holy ground? How the powers of darkness rage thy steps around? Christian, dost thou feel them? How they work within, striving, tempting, luring, goading into sin? Christian, dost thou hear them? How they speak thee fair? Always fast and vigil, always watch and prayer, and so it goes on. All around us are the powers of evil, and their aim is to lead us into bondage and subjugation. Now the second thing is this, the Christian's defense. Well, what is it? You might feel that we're helpless before such devilish hordes of evil intent on persuading us into the realm of error and taking us out of the realm of God's truth. And here is John's blessed answer in verse 4. Do you see what it is? It's in two parts. You are of God, he says. Now, isn't that encouraging? He's not speaking of those who've come into the Christian faith with an intellectual grasp of its teaching. He's speaking of people who have been regenerated and born of God and so have come into a right grasp that is more than intellectual. It's the ascent of the mind and the conscience and the heart so I am persuaded in all of my renewed being of the truth of God. And the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to see my lost condition as subjects of Satan and opened my eyes to see Jesus as the Son of God, the only unique Savior, and showed me the atoning nature of his blood and wrought in me a work of grace. And John can say of the people to whom he writes, You are of God. And by virtue of that, you see, the groundwork has already been laid to overcome the power of the false prophets and refuse their false teaching. Why? Because built into that work of regenerating grace is the presence of the Holy Spirit vitally in the heart of the Christian who is teaching him to test everything that he sees and hears and reads and feels because he is of God. But the second thing you notice about this encouragement is that John also says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's not in our own power or wisdom that we overcome the false teachers and the false teaching. He that was promised in chapter 2, verse 27, to anoint us, he is greater than the prince of darkness who seeks by his devilish agents to lead us into spiritual bondage. Now that is the liberating truth we need to grasp this evening, dear friends. Let us take note that the indwelling Holy Spirit 
is stronger than all the powers of hell itself. And oh, what a glorious thing it is that we can say in the midst of the most bitter conflict and the most costly contest, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you see what John is saying? In the midst of bewilderment, when the Christian is being pulled in this direction and drawn out in that direction and stretched in this direction by false teaching and his mind is in a whirl. And like the broken clock, some of these cults and false prophets are saying some true things. Oh, yes, they are. And clearly they are inspired. And I can feel the effect of that inspiration. In the midst of that situation, we remember we are indwelt by one who is incomparably great. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Satan cannot grasp you, and Satan cannot hold you if he does grasp you momentarily. And there is no way, says John, that the spirit of falsehood can overcome the spirit of truth. Now, beloved, isn't that such an encouraging truth? And you see, the Holy Spirit takes hold of us, and he makes us listen to the apostolic teaching. Do you notice that in verse 6? We, that is, the inspired apostles, are from God, and whoever knows God, listens to us. And what the Holy Spirit does, that one who is incomparably great, is take us back again and again and again to the fountain of God's truth in the scriptures of God's word, and he makes us drink deeply of the things of God, and the mark is we listen to those things of God because we are of God and we are not of the world as we have seen. So in conclusion this evening, I want to say this to you. How can you ever be pessimistic about the Christian life, my dear Christian friend? Of all the men that walk on the face of the earth tonight, the Christian should be the most optimistic man alive. Why? Because Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we should be optimistic about the mission of the church. You know, so often we're so pessimistic when we see the rise of Islam spreading into the Western world. The New Age movement, with all its deceptiveness, infiltrating even the Christian church. But we cannot fail, because the word of God is the instrument that the Spirit of God uses to keep us in the truth. And the confession, you see, of Jesus as Lord and Christ as we have seen is that which enables us to overcome the evil one. Of all the people alive in the world tonight, the Christian then 
is to be the most optimistic of all. And in the midst of the worst of deceptions, and in the midst of the worst that Satan can hurl against us, we must remember that a feeble saint shall win the day. Yes, he shall, though death and hell obstruct the way. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, this evening hour, As this service draws to its close, we thank you for what we've learned from this passage. Not only the error that they advance, but the audience that these false teachers attract and the aim that they would attain were they able to deceive the very elect of God. O gracious Father, may we be constantly on our guard and as we sing this final hymn, May we together take its great truths to heart and live indeed to the glory of God every day of our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.